0: All right. well, welcome to Theological Equipping class. Today we are going over the topic of ethics. So we've been talking this semester about the Christian life, and then later on this semester we'll be talking about the doctrine of the church, and today we're going to be talking some about ethics. Before we do, I want to give you two quick uh, updates. If you will notice to my right, your left, two things I want you to see. One, you see that little uh, black box up there? Uh, That is uh, something that our preschool is now using in case you have a child who is acting up. We can now flash your number so you know to go check on your child, that they are inconsolable. And so uh, that's what that is. We've also added one in, uh, in the uh, sanctuary. The other thing that we're going to try, we're going to try something new today. Typically at the end we have Q&A, but Tim had an idea which we thought was really good, and so we're going to give it a try. And then if it doesn't work, we just fire Tim. But here's the idea. <laughs> The idea is that, uh, so sometimes at the end of the the thing when we're we're doing Q&A, sometimes people can't hear the question because someone will say it on one end of the room and people can't hear it on the other. Or sometimes we're like, who has a question? And there's just a bunch of dead space and it makes it awkward and these kind of things. So Tim said, why don't we just have people text in their questions? and so we're going to try that today so at any point if you have a question during the lesson you can text it to that number and it will go back to our computer and then uh, when Jeff comes up to help me answer questions at the end then we already have some good questions there if we don't get to your question that doesn't mean we don't love you it doesn't mean it's not a good question it just means we ran out of time so feel free to find us afterwards we would love to chat with you uh, or send us an email during the week does that sound good so we're going to leave that number up there in case you just have a spicy, juicy question. Okay, let's talk about ethics, everybody's favorite, uh, everybody's favorite topic. Now let me tell you why we're talking about this and why you can't use the excuse, "Why don't we just believe the Bible to know what's ethical?" Let me explain something about that. First of all, the Bible does contain everything that uh, that God requires you to know about ethics. There are no commands uh, outside of the Bible that God requires you to follow. Okay, everything God wants you to know about Him, everything God wants you to know about ethics is included in the Bible. So this is not meant to. Deny the sufficiency of Scripture. What I'm saying by this is when we come to the Bible, we bring these different pre-assumptions and these presuppositions, and so the study of ethics helps us summarize those. So when we do theology, what we're doing is we're looking at everything the Bible teaches on any one topic, let's say salvation or the end times, and we're summarizing it. When we study ethics, we're doing the same thing, okay? So for somebody that says, well, Zach, why do we need to study this? Why can't we just believe the Bible? Let me show you some reasons Why? What should Christians think about issues, for example, like in vitro fertilization? We know that human life has value. We know that we are not to kill babies. What should we think of in vitro fertilization? Okay. See, what we're doing in ethics is we're taking commands in the Bible and we're having to apply them to modern situations, and that's where the thinking part comes in there. For what type of candidates should Christians vote? You can scour the pages of the Bible to try to find a direct answer on that, and it is tricky, and so uh, ethics helps us understand that. Uh, we should not murder. The Bible's clear on that. But what exactly does and doesn't count as murder? Hmm, what does and doesn't count as murder? The Bible forbids sexual immorality, but what exactly does that entail? What is and is not sexual immorality, okay? The Bible commands us not to lie. So if I, said sh- if I say, should we lie, you'll say, no, the Bible says not to lie. Well, what if you're a spy, What if you're an undercover officer? Are you a cop? Well, I'm not supposed to lie, so yeah, and then you just get shot. Is that what you're supposed to do? You see, so it becomes a little bit trickier than that. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the study of ethics and we're going to look at a few different ethical systems. We have to go fast, so everybody bear with me. But to start out, I want to give us four test cases. What we're going to do is we're going to look at four big systems of ethics. There are more than four. But we're going to look at the four big ones. And we're going to apply that system to four individual specific questions. Okay, so here are the four test cases that we will use. Scenario one. You are a German citizen during World War II, and you're hiding Jews in your basement. A Nazi officer knocks on the door and asks if you're hiding any Jews, any enemies of the state. What should you do? Are you sinning if you lie to the officer to protect the Jews? Hmm, interesting. Scenario two, you're a Navy SEAL, and you're sent in to kill a known terrorist leader. As you approach his village, an innocent shepherd boy sees your team. If you don't kill the boy, he will tell the terrorist leader about your team, which will cause the terrorist to get away, your team to be in danger, and will lead to the deaths of many more people whom the terrorist will kill. Do you kill the innocent child to prevent many more deaths from happening? What do you do? Okay. That is the uh, scenario, by the way, from the movie Lone Survivor, if you've seen that. Don't watch it with your four-year-old, but uh, if not, it's a pretty good movie. Scenario three. A politician is running for office who has a great economic policy, a great education policy, a great foreign policy, and a great immigration policy. However, they are explicitly pro-choice. Can you vote for the candidate because they will benefit your country on these other issues? and then scenario four you grew up hearing that drinking was wrong but just learned that the bible doesn't forbid all forms of drinking you're invited to a work christmas party where there will be drinking and laughs and you do not have a proclivity towards alcoholism do you attend do you drink while you're there now let me say something about these questions the first three of these questions are really difficult the fourth one is not as difficult, okay? The reason I've included different kinds of questions is because we're not going to answer all of these questions today. I'll answer the last one. Yes, you can drink if you don't get drunk. But other than that, we're not really going to answer all of these questions today, okay? What we're going to do is as we study these different ethical systems, we're going to look through how each of those systems would answer these four questions. I have answers to these different four questions, but I don't want to give those to you. I want you to debate about this over lunch. I want you to sit down and be like, would you shoot a shepherd boy to protect your SEAL team? That's what I want happening after service today. That's what I want going on during lunch. That is iron sharpening iron. So I've chosen uh, three difficult questions and one question that's not as difficult just because I want to use these as an example of how each of these ethical systems we're gonna look at would answer those questions. By the way, scenario number three assumes that the other candidate is pro-life, just to keep that in mind uh, for our uh, scenarios. Okay, let's look at these four ethical systems. You guys ready? Yeah. You, you seem thrilled. You seem really excited to learn about ethical systems. Okay. First one is this, subjectivism, okay? This is a worldview here, subjectivism. Subjectivism is an ethical theory that says this, that nothing is objectively right or wrong. Whenever people say something is morally good, they mean they personally like it or approve of it. And when they say something is bad, they mean they dislike it or don't approve of it. This is very popular in our culture right now, that when people say something is good, they mean, I like this, I want this to be true. And when they say it's bad, they mean, I don't like it, I don't want it to be true. Okay? This is a very popular view of uh, ethics in our culture. If you need a summary, here's the idea. Ethics is a matter of personal opinion when it comes to subjectivism. If you're a subjectivist, ethics is a matter of personal opinion. Okay? Ethics is a matter of personal opinion. Now, let me, let me distinguish this from something called relativism. Subjectivism is what's good is my opinion. It's what's good is how I feel. That's subjectivism. Relativism is similar to this, but relativism says that two people can have opposing worldviews that are both correct at the same time. You ever seen the coexist bumper sticker? The reason I love that bumper sticker is because it lets me know that you know nothing about the claims of the world's major religions, okay? Because they are contradictory. They are exclusive, okay? So a relativist, here's the problem with relativism. So let's say that someone is a flat earther. You know what a flat earther is? Someone who believes that the earth is flat? if you're a relativist, you have to say that the earth is flat for them, okay? And that for someone who believes in a round earth, you have to say the earth is round for you, and you're both right at the same time. I don't care about that. I want to know, is the world actually flat around objectively, scientifically, not just to one person or another? Or you know people who are Holocaust deniers. They deny that the Holocaust ever happened. If you're a relativist, you have to say that that's true. It never really happened, and that's true for them. That's ridiculous. We don't care if it's true for them. We want to know, did the Holocaust happen? Okay? So relativism is this idea that contrary and contradictory ethical opinions can both be true at the same time. Subjectivism is that ethics is merely one's opinion. Okay? is one's opinion. Now, you can have a larger societal subjectivism, okay? So you can say that some people think that what's good or bad is just how they feel, but you can also say that uh, ethics can be determined by a society. If a bunch of people think that something is good, then it's good, or if a bunch of people think that something is bad, then it's bad. So subjectivism can get into a more corporate sphere, can get into a more corporate sphere. Okay. Now, let me give you some major thinkers and uh, what they would say about subjectivism. The big two I want to give you for this is a guy named David Hume and another guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I don't know if you've ever heard of Hume or Rousseau, but they promoted an idea that is fascinating in the study of ethics, and it's simply this, ready? They said that people don't ultimately make decisions on what's good or bad based upon logic or reason, they do it based off of emotion. Now, we shouldn't make decisions that way. That's not a biblical way to do it. But Hume and Rousseau are really good at pointing out what tends to be the case in human nature. Most of the time when people talk about what's good or bad, what they're doing is not thinking through the issue logically. They're taking what they're already passionate about and then they're reading it back onto the situation. How can two Christians hold contrary views on an ethical issue and fight each other on Facebook when they have the same Bible? It's because most of the time they're not both saying, let me lay down my presuppositions and just see what the Bible says. What they're doing is they're taking their emotion and their feeling and they're reading that back on to the issue, okay? David Hume has something called Hume's guillotine. Here's what he says, he says that you cannot know what is ethical through experience. You do not know, you never see goodness, okay? He says that there is a distinction between what is the case and what ought to be the case. What do I mean by that? If I see somebody get murdered, I just see a murder. I don't see whether or not it's good or bad. If I see someone commit adultery, I just see adultery. I don't see whether or not it's good or bad. So what Hume would say is all we have are these experiences, but we can't actually learn good or bad that way. That, that crosses over that infinite chasm between what is the case and what. Ought to be the case. It's called Hume's guillotine. Okay. Now that was a lot of information. So let's just give a quick summary. Who can tell me what subjectivism is without looking at your notes? I know I've put two definitions in your notes. Without looking at your notes, who can give me a quick summary? It's a, it's opinion. Okay. That's a great summary. It's it's opinion. For me to say something's good or bad means that I personally feel like it's good or bad. But you might have a different ethic. That's the view of subjectivism. Okay. Now let's ask how a subjectivist would answer each of our four scenarios, okay? Now, by the way, I put them up here just to remind you what they were. I realized when you read it together, it says Nazi seals vote drinking, which is kind of weird. (laughs) Uh, That's not not what I meant to do, Um, but for our scenarios earlier. So we have those four scenarios. If you're hiding Jews in your basement and the Nazis knock on the door, you're a seal team and you have to shoot a shepherd boy so he doesn't give away your position, should you vote for a pro-choice candidate in that sense, and then the idea of a drinking. So you're going to now see the major flaw when it comes to subjectivism. How would a subjectivist answer the first one? Do you hand over the Jews in your basement, or do you lie, or do you not? What do you do? Whatever you want. Either one can be right. Yeah, I'm going to hand over these Jews to get holocausted. That's my opinion that it's good. Or I have a larger social ethic because it's Nazi Germany and most people are opposed to the Jews, and so, yeah, maybe we can hand it over and that's good and right. Or maybe you say, no, to me personally, I think it's wrong to hand over the Jews, and so I will lie because I don't think that's wrong. You see that it just becomes opinion. There's no objective answer that's right or wrong, okay? It just becomes subjective opinion. What do you do with the seal illustration? Whatever you want, same thing. If you think it's okay to shoot the kid, you shoot the kid. And the other guy in your SEAL platoon doesn't want to shoot the kid, and you're both right. You're both right, okay? You see the big problem there? When it comes to how you vote, how would a subjectivist answer this? It doesn't matter. You just pick. If you're okay putting someone in office who have said, I will try to push for a ton of abortion legislation, but they'll be good in other areas, go for it. If you think that that's wrong and you say, no, I don't wanna do that, you're also right. That's the problem, again, with subjectivism is you're you're seeing the flaw with this ethical system. If you're a subjectivist, there are no ethics. There's just people's opinion, okay? And then lastly, when it comes to drinking or not drinking, if you're a subjectivist, it just depends. If you personally think it's wrong, then it's wrong, and if you personally think it's right, then it's right, okay? So uh, that would be subjectivism. So uh, let me name some problems with uh, subjectivism. Number one, there's no objective standard of right or wrong. Number two, if someone thinks assaulting children is okay, then it is for them if you're a subjectivist. You see, the problem with any ethical system that allows you to assault children is probably a bad ethical system, okay? I remember hearing a uh, professor over at uh, University of California, Berkeley, who is uh, a subjectivist, and he was making the case that uh, the only reason you can't assault children is because society frowns on it, but it's not ethically wrong in and of itself. On this view, if I can get enough people to dislike the Jews, I can start the Holocaust, another downside of subjectivism. And then lastly, it's logically contradictory. Everyone's contradictory opinions are right at the same time. So I say all that to say this, is subjectivism a Christian position? No, yeah, I want you, boo, that's right, yeah, like with Pelagius, boo, the heretic. Subjectivism is not a Christian position of ethics, okay? So I say this to equip you in this, be careful of any argument that arises in your own heart or the heart of another that says, what's right is what's right to me, what's wrong is what's wrong to me. That is not a Christian way of thinking, okay? Let's look at the second system. This is called virtue ethics. It's also called aretaic ethics. The, uh, Greek word, uh, ara, uh, the Greek word comes from uh, Aristotle, uh, who would say that your arete is your excellence, that you're maximizing your human potential, okay? So virtue ethics is simply this, ready? Choosing to act virtuously over time makes you a virtuous person who naturally does what is right and maximizes your human potential. The focus is more about becoming a virtuously wise person generally instead of knowing what to do in each particular moral situation. So let me give you a summary of that. I know that's a big definition. What is virtue ethics? Okay. Uh, ethics is a matter of practiced virtue and finding the mean between two extremes. Let me explain this view of ethics. Okay. This comes to us from Aristotle. It's highlighted in his uh, book Nicomachean Ethics. And uh, basically what he's going to say is this, the goal of ethics is not to be able to figure out an entire list of do's and don'ts. The goal of ethics is for you to practice being a virtuous person, and the more virtuous you become, the more you naturally know what to do in any given situation the more you naturally know what to do in any given situation, okay? And so for, uh, for Aristotle, uh, what you would do is you would practice virtue like you practice a sport. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you've never played basketball and you decide you're gonna start trying to play basketball. Are you gonna be very good at it when you start? No, you're gonna be awful. You're gonna be bouncing the ball off your foot and your foot works terrible and you're gonna do granny shots and you're gonna do all these kind of things and you're not very good at it at first. But the better you become at basketball and the more you practice you actually get better and better and better, okay? And then when you're playing basketball, you don't have to think about it so much. You just know where to cut and when to set a pick and when to do all these other things because you've practiced basketball. Or when you first decide to play an instrument, let's say you decide to play the flute. When you first start playing the instrument, you're terrible at it, okay? Everyone hates you. It's loud and annoying, but you don't just say, I'm gonna be good. I'm gonna play it when I'm good at it. You play it to get good at it. You practice it and you become better and better and better. Aristotle would say virtue is the same way, that you can practice not lusting. You can practice taking thoughts captive. You can practice not being greedy. You can practice these things, and guess what? You might not be very good at it at first, but the more you practice it, the better you will become, and you will become a more and more virtuous person, according to Aristotle, okay? So the goal of the system is not to create a full list of do's and don'ts. It's to become a virtuous person who knows what to do in the situation because you've been practicing it for so long. Okay? Now, uh, what do you need to be able to practice virtue? Well, according to Aristotle, it is only available to male Greek citizens. So only male Greek citizens could be happy for Aristotle, uh, but we can still apply some uh, some of his thinking for us today. Okay? What Aristotle says is he says when we're thinking about ethics, we have to come up with what is called to him the golden mean. What does that mean? The golden mean. What he means by that and a different meaning of the word means. What he means by that is that when we're thinking about a, a, a virtue, it's typically in the middle of two extremes, okay? Now, let me be clear. That's not true if we're talking about a vice. It's not like, should I only commit adultery or should I never commit adultery? Aristotle says I should sometimes commit adultery. No, it doesn't work like that for vices. It doesn't work that way for things that are evil. He's saying when it comes to things that are actually good, how we should live our life typically falls in the middle of two extremes. What does that mean? I'll give you an example. Bravery. What is bravery, okay? Bravery, for uh, Aristotle, is in between these extremes. It's not cowardice to where you're afraid all the time, but nor is it brashness, nor is it to where you just run out into battle screaming like a kamikaze and just get killed, okay? That courage is this mean in between cowardice and brashness, where that's true courage. True courage is not a suicide mission, nor is true courage cowardice. It's being courageous at the appropriate time and the appropriate amount, okay? Courage for Aristotle is not that you just work up your emotions or you take a shot of liquid courage to go ask out the pretty girl or something like that. It's where you've practiced putting your fear to death so much that finally in the moment of battle, you know what to do and know how to be courageous because you've been practicing it for years, okay? So courage, for example, is in between brashness and cowardice. Temperance, these are all examples from Aristotle. Temperance would be between not enjoying pleasures at all and being a hedonist, okay? That's temperance. It's not that you only pursue these pleasures, uh, these uh, self-exalting pleasures, nor is it that you never partake in any pleasure. Rather, you have temperance. You have some pleasure, okay? There's a moderation. Uh, Aristotle's a big moderation guy. Here's another one. I like this one from Aristotle. Wittiness is a virtue for Aristotle. It's in between being boring on the one hand and having no sense of humor versus being a buffoon, okay? So if you can never take a joke and you can never laugh and you're always stodgy, what Aristotle would say is you're unethical, okay? That you are unethical. If you're only joking around, okay, or you're never joking around, neither of those are right, it's to sometimes joke around. That's the idea of wittiness, okay? So somebody give me a quick summary of Aristotle. What is his ethical system? So subjectivism is just your opinion. What is Aristotle's system? Moderation and practiced virtue. You practice being a good basketball player. You don't have to know all the ways you could move. In the moment, you'll know what to do because you've been practicing basketball. Same way with virtue, okay? So this is a good system. This is uh, very much fits with a lot of ideas within the Bible and Christianity. Here's gonna be the big flaw you're gonna see in the system as we go through what the virtue ethicist would say when uh, practicing arate, or personal greatness. So with the Nazi example, where the Nazis knock on your door and you're hiding Jews in the basement, how would somebody who's a virtue ethicist respond to that? What was it? What was it? I should have practiced more. Yes, yes. See, this, this is the problem with virtue ethics, is that it doesn't give you a strong enough list of what exactly to do in every situation. Maybe you shouldn't have ever taken the Jews in to begin with. Maybe there was another way to get them out of Germany that you should have been wise and practiced before doing that. Maybe that you've practiced virtue enough to where you know that lying is not as bad as handing over Jews to get holocausted, okay? Maybe you can't do that. You've practiced not lying so much that you believe that that is the golden mean and now you uh, must tell the truth and you must give up the Jews. You see, you run into a problem with virtue ethics. It's great as a general theory, but it doesn't give you enough meat on the bones. It just gives you a skeleton, but it doesn't tell you how to answer all the questions. Same way with the seal example. What do you do if you are a virtue ethicist? Well, the hope is that you've practiced enough virtue up until that point to be able to make the decision based on the best of your ability in the moment, okay? Well, that doesn't answer the question. Do you shoot this child or do you not? If you shoot the child, yes, you've killed someone innocent, but you're gonna save a lot of lives. But is that how we do ethics? that we kill some to save many, even if that person's innocent? On voting, uh, whether you have a pro-choice candidate that has a bunch of other good stuff or a pro-life candidate that doesn't have his other good stuff or whatever, they would end up saying you would have to know in the moment, okay? Okay. If you've practiced a bunch of virtue, you might think that it is more virtuous to make sure all those other things in society are taken care of, but not this one most important issue of the fact we kill 1.5 million babies a year in America, most of whom are minorities and most of whom who are women. Uh, But you might say, well, you know, maybe because I've practiced virtue enough, maybe that is the most important issue. And then with the drinking one, I do think I know how Aristotle would answer. He would say that you should drink in moderation. He would say that just because you had a bad experience growing up, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So that's probably how uh, a virtue ethicist would answer that question. But here's the big flaw you're seeing with virtue ethics. It doesn't give you a specific enough right or wrong in every individual ur- circumstance. Okay? So some problems with uh, Aristotle's system. First, some of Aristotle's virtues the Bible would call vices. Pride is a virtue for Aristotle, for example, okay? Number two, and this is a big one for us as Christians, you cannot really be a good person without the Spirit. You cannot truly practice virtue, in God's eyes, without the Spirit. You can do acts that society would say are good, but uh, you can't truly do an act that God would consider good apart from being regenerate. Virtue ethics doesn't give you a strong enough standard to answer our specific ethical questions. And then lastly, the Bible doesn't just contain general virtues, like in the book of Proverbs, but also direct categorical commands. Do not commit adultery, etc. It gives us specifics. So is this a Christian position? Yes, but it's not complete, okay? Yes, but it's not complete. The idea of moderation is a biblical idea. The idea of pursuing excellence is a biblical idea uh the idea of practicing virtue and the more you renew your mind the more you walk in righteousness the easier it is to do that that's a biblical idea but uh Aristotle's system is incomplete without scripture okay let me give you the third one now this is the one that i hate with every fiber of my being okay i hate this system it has influenced the church it has corrupted the church it is the worst here's what it is it's called utilitarianism okay An act is morally right if it produces more overall pleasure than pain for the greatest number of people, and it is morally wrong if it produces more pain than pleasure for the greatest number of people. That's the idea, okay? The idea of utilitarianism is this. Let's pretend that there is no God and there is no Bible. Can we come up with a system to know what's right or wrong just based upon results? And for guys like Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, the answer is yes, We will judge that something is good if it produces more pleasure than pain, and it is bad if it produces more pain than pleasure. That's the idea of utilitarianism. So as a summary, ethics is a matter of finding the greatest practical good for the greatest number of people, okay, the greatest number of people. Now, this is different than pragmatism, although they're related. So I I know I'm giving you a bunch of isms and words, so let me just summarize these. Utilitarianism is that something is good if it produces more pleasure than pain. Pragmatism is that something is good if it works, okay? I'm lumping these two systems together because they both say that something is good or bad depending upon the results and not depending upon the action in and of itself, okay? So both of these systems would say actions don't have a right or wrong in and of themselves. It only depends upon results. If you're a pragmatist, if something works, it's good. If it doesn't work, it's bad. If you're a utilitarian, if something is good, if it produces pleasure, and bad, if it produces pain. Okay, that's the idea of these systems. <clears throat> and so I want to give you an example of how much this has influenced our thinking as Americans. Okay, so I told this uh, story a while back in one of these classes, but I'll give you this, this illustration. You're on a boat, okay? And on the boat, there are three people. There's the president, okay? If you don't like the current president or whatever, pick a president you do like. Find a president you like. There's a president you like. I'm gonna use, uh, I'm gonna use Teddy Roosevelt because I think he's the toughest. He's the only president that had a chest tattoo. So Teddy Roosevelt, you have the president... You have a three-year-old little girl, and she is cute, guys. I mean, however cute you think she is, she's way cuter than that. She has pigtails. She has a little stuffed unicorn. She's just adorable, okay? And then you have a 90-year-old man who has terminal cancer, okay? Those are your three people, the president, the little girl, and the man with terminal cancer. They all fall off the boat, and you can only save one. Who do you save? Think about it for a second. Don't yell it out. Just think about it. Who do you save? Now, when I've asked people that question, some will say, the president, and I say, why? And they say, a pragmatic answer. He has an important job. He's the most powerful man in the free world, okay? Other times I've asked people and they said, oh, the little girl, because she has so much life left to live. She's innocent, although it's not true biblically. She's innocent. She has all this life left to live. She's only three. You know who no one has ever decided to rescue? The 90-year-old man with cancer. Do you know why? Because he, in our thinking, is seen as less valuable because he doesn't have much life left to live. He's gonna die anyway. So instead of us saying all these people are equally valuable because they all bear the image of God, they're all important, we end up start picking and choosing what's more valuable based upon pragmatism. That's how much this system has influenced our thinking as Americans, okay? And so, uh, so the idea here is that the end result is what determines what's good and bad. The practical consequences are what determine what's good and bad. And so what's interesting, guys like Bentham and Mill, they actually created what's called a pleasure calculus. They would calculate how much pleasure something produces versus how much pain it produces, and if it produces more pleasure than pain for the greatest number of people, therefore it's good. Okay? Mill has a famous phrase where he says, better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. And his point of that is to say, some pleasures are higher than other pleasures. Okay? When you stand at the Grand Canyon, that should produce in you a pleasure that is higher than when you watch professional wrestling. Okay? That's the idea. Certain pleasures are higher than, uh, than other pleasures. Okay? This view is this idea that the end justifies the means. The end justifies the means. That's the idea of utilitarianism. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so with that in mind, give me a quick summary. What is utilitarianism? I just gave you one. The end justifies the means. What's good is nothing in and of itself. It's just, does it produce a bunch of pleasure for a bunch of people or a bunch of pain for a bunch of people? So let's think about how each of them would answer these questions. What would you do if you are hiding Jews in your basement and an SS officer knocks on your door if you're a utilitarian? Would you lie? You could still do either depending on which one you thought would produce more pain than pleasure. If killing Jews... Everybody look at me, this is important. If killing Jews would produce more pleasure in Germany for all the people who hate Jews than it would the pain of those few Jews who have to die, then it's morally right to the utilitarian. You see how unchristian this ethic is, okay? So you have to do whatever produces more pleasure than pain for the greatest number of people. So if millions of people get a little bit of pleasure from someone dying and that one person has a bunch of pain but he's only one person, that's probably worth doing to the utilitarian. What do you do if you are in the lone survivor scenario? You absolutely kill the kid if you're a utilitarian. Killing one kid, one person dies. You let the terrorists go free, they kill 100 more people. So for them, notice that the value is in like numbers. This kid's life is all of a sudden less valuable because of numbers, okay? When it comes to voting, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say this, when they say somebody has an excellent economic policy, they have an excellent foreign policy, but they're really, really, really want to kill a bunch of babies, the utilitarian would say, oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> Their other policies will produce more pleasure for the country than just the 1.5 million babies that we kill, okay? You have no idea how many Christians think in utilitarian terms, especially when it comes to politics. All these other issues are great, so let's just ignore the fact that we genocide our own citizens every year, okay? And then when it comes to uh, drinking, it depends on what produces more pleasure than pain. So if you're a utilitarian, maybe getting drunk lets a lot of people have fun because they're laughing at you and you're having all that fun, so now all of a sudden drunkenness is okay if you're a utilitarian. You see? This is a very, let me ask this question, is this a Christian position? No, okay? It is not a Christian position. Let me give you some problems with utilitarianism. Number one, how do you calculate the total amount of pleasure versus pain? That's always been a problem for utilitarians, okay? How do do you calculate how many people are affected in a pleasurable way? Which pleasures are higher? Which ones are not higher? That's a problem with the system. Here's another big problem. If torturing one child brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, then it would be morally right under this system, okay? If you had a, a million sickos who love torturing children, and you tortured one child, that child would go through a lot of pain, but it would not outweigh the pleasure gained by the million, and therefore it would be okay to do, okay? It is unbiblical in that it acts as though actions are not morally right or wrong in and of themselves. And lastly, some people find, well, I said lastly, I've got another one. Some people find evil things pleasurable. That's a problem with this system. And then lastly, in this system, your motives are irrelevant in this system, okay? I'll give you an example. If I am kind to my grandmother just because I love her, or I am kind to my grandmother just so I can get into her will and make money, those are exactly the same for the utilitarian. Because at the end of the day, you're still doing the same thing, being kind to grandma, okay? So motives are completely irrelevant for the utilitarian. All that matters is results. All that matters is results for the utilitarian. Is this a Christian position? No, and I've even included a scripture reference for this one, where the Bible condemns in Romans 3.20, let us do evil that good may result god is never ever asking you to sin he's never asking you even to do a little bit of sin he's never saying do a little bit of sin because there'll be a good result god is saying do not ever sin period god is saying sin is dangerous sin will hurt you you do not play with sin god is not saying sin a little bit he's always saying do not sin okay number four another big system here first of all let's do a recap i'm giving you a bunch of weird names and words subjectivism someone yell it out Personal opinion. If it's good, if I think it's good, I like it. It's good. If I don't like it, it's bad. Uh, virtue ethics. Pre- moderation and practice virtue. Yes, I'll combine y'all's two answers. Good. Good. Uh, utilitarianism. The end justifies the means. We're worried about pleasure and pain for the greatest number of people at the end of the day. Or if you're a pragmatist, which is a similar movement, uh, what works, at the end of the day, we're not interested in the actions in and of themselves. Well, number four is a, uh, a system that is different than all of these, and it is what is called deontological ethics, okay? deon is the Greek word for duty. That's what this idea is, this idea of duty-based ethics, deontological ethics. Now, listen to this one. This one's different than the other ones. An act is right or wrong depending upon logical, binding, universal rules which all people are bound to by duty. An act is right or wrong depending upon logical binding universal rules to which all people are bound by duty. Here's a summary of this one. Ethics is a matter of universal logical commands regardless of consequences. Ethics is a matter of universal logical commands regardless of consequences. Now, the developer of this system is a very famous philosopher, a guy named Immanuel Kant. I don't know if you've ever heard that name, K-A-N-T, Immanuel Kant. Uh, He is within probably the top four most influential philosophers in world history. I mean, he is uh, an enormous figure. He was uh, kind of a nerd, spent all his life at a university. He was so precise that people could set their watches based upon when he would do his daily routine. So when he went to lunch at noon, you're like, oh man, my watch is off because there goes Kant. noon. He was supposedly only late one time in his life and it was the day he read Rousseau. Okay? Now, he came up with this, category, this, uh, this command. The fancy philosophical term is uh, the categorical imperative. Here is the, uh, the way that Kant states it, and then we'll, we'll unpack it because I know this seems kind of complicated. Act so that the maxim, that just means the rule, may be capable of becoming a universal law for all rational beings. Act so that the maxim may be capable of becoming a universal law for all rational beings. What does that mean? Here's what Kant says about ethics. Everyone is bound to follow certain rules based upon duty, and the way you know whether or not something is ethical is you ask this question. Do I want to make this thing a universal rule for everyone? Okay? So instead of arguing about a specific, ask yourself, if this is right, then I should want to make it to be a universal rule for everyone. Let me give you a few examples, okay? These are a few examples from Kant. Is lying wrong to Kant? Let me ask it this way. If I were to say, Kant, I can break my promise if it makes my life easier, he would ask, do you want to make that a universal rule? Do you want to make it a rule for everyone that they can always break a promise as long as it would make their life easier? And the answer is no, because if promises didn't have to be kept, there'd be no such thing as promises. So notice what Kant's doing. It's kind of a two-step. He's saying, one, would you want to make this, it being okay to lie, universal? And two, would you end up contradicting yourself if you did so? Yes, If all of a sudden you can lie, then there's no such thing as truth-telling, and there is no morality when it comes to lying. Here's another one. If someone were to say, if my life is bad, I can commit suicide, should that be a universal law to Kant? His answer is no. It's a logical contradiction to say that I want to make my life better by ending it. You would not want to make it a universal rule for people who have difficult lives to commit suicide. Or if someone were to say, to make myself happy, I should just be lazy and enjoy life, should that become a universal law? Kant would say, no, it's a logical contradiction to say that to be happy, uh, I won't develop myself and my talents, which is something that you actually need to be happy, okay? Whereas utilitarianism is the end justifies the means, deontological ethics is truth regardless of the consequences, truth regardless of the consequences. So with utilitarianism, the end is what makes something right or wrong, not the action itself. For Kant, the action in and of itself is right or wrong, regardless of the consequences, Okay? Regardless of the consequences. So, before deciding if an action is right or wrong, you should ask, "What if everyone were to do that?" What if everyone were to do that? Okay, can I give you an example from our culture that just to use now? I'm, I'm going to say something. I want to be really clear what I'm about to say. I am not taking a position on this issue, left or right. Not trying to give a position on it. I just want to let you know how we're asking the wrong question. Okay, how Kant can help us with our ethics. Because it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'll use the NFL example. Okay, so last year, I don't know if you know, there's obviously a big controversy in the the NFL, UFL, Universal Football League, the NFL about players taking a knee during the national anthem or whatever. Now, both sides are arguing past each other, right? One side is saying, we're not taking a knee to disrespect America, we're taking a knee to protest police brutality, which is happening in America, and this is trying to draw attention to that. That's what one side is saying. The other side is saying, you're being disrespectful, you're not being patriotic. And the reason that people fight each other on social media and on the news is because they're asking the wrong question. What Kant would say is you have to come up with a universal rule and argue about that rule. So you have to ask a, a better question, something like this. Do people have a right on private property to express their political opinion? Or do people not have a right on private property to express their political opinion? Something like that. What Kant is trying to get us to do is to get away just from that individual thing where we're fighting each other and yelling past each other and to come up with a universal rule. What should the rule be? Because until we figure out what someone does and doesn't have the right to do when it comes to freedom of speech or freedom of speech while working for a private entity, you're never gonna be able to answer the question of whether or not that's right or wrong, okay? So I'm not giving a position on that either side. I'm wanting you to see that the reason that people get into so many fights is they're asking the wrong question, according to Kant, okay? The Me Too movement is not about just should we believe women or should we not believe women? What Kant wants is he wants a universal rule, is the universal rule believe all women who say they've been sexually assaulted regardless of evidence? Or is the rule believe all women who say they've been sexually assaulted if there's evidence? Is somebody guilty before they, just by being accused or do they have to wait till after the trial? You have to answer those questions before you know what you should think about things like this, okay? I think Kant could be very helpful in our thinking today. Here are four ethical points from Kant. Number one, ethics is based on the action in and of itself regardless of the consequences. Regardless of the consequences. Ethics must be generalizable for everyone. Kant don't care about your feelings or experiences. Kant does not care about your feelings or experiences. He just cares about the action in and of itself. You must treat people as an end and not as a means only. You can't be nice to grandma just to get into her will like you can for Mill. You have to treat people as an end, not as a means. You're to love people. You're not just to use them. And then lastly, you must act with the right motivation, duty. You must act with the right motivation, which is the motivation of wanting to do what's right, wanting to do what is your duty to do. Now, with that in mind, how would someone who uh, is Kantian, someone who believes in deontological ethics, answer each of these four scenarios, okay? Let's say you're hiding Jews in the basement, okay, and a Nazi knocks on the door and says, are you hiding Jews? How would Kant answer? What do you do? This is where it's tricky, okay? Kant would say this. Let me be clear what Kant would say. You cannot lie, okay? You cannot lie because that would be something you wouldn't want to make a rule for everyone. You don't want to tell people everyone can lie as long as it will lead to a good result, okay? You don't want to make that a universal rule for Kant. So Kant would say you cannot lie, okay? But that doesn't mean he would say that you hand over the Jews. Maybe you do something else. Maybe you fight the Nazis, maybe you run away, maybe you act like you're insane like King David does in the Old Testament and drools on his beard. You do a bunch of things, but you cannot lie. Kant would say, if you lied, you've still sinned, okay? By the way, the question with this Nazi example is not what should we do. I think we would all agree we don't hand over the Jews. The question is, have you sinned if you lie to protect the Jews? And Kant would say yes, Kant would say yes. When it comes to the Navy SEAL thing, what do you do if you're Kant? This one's very clear. You do not kill the child. But what if this terrorist kills a bunch of other people? That's not on you. It's not your job to keep a terrorist from being a terrorist if the only way you can do so is to kill an innocent person. You wanna make that a universal rule? Anytime it will benefit other people, you can kill a child. No, you don't wanna make that a universal rule. What would you do if you are Kantian with the voting issue? You would say just because somebody has a great, all these other policies, if they are genocidal, if they are infanticidal, you cannot vote for them. You don't want that to be uh, a generalizable rule for everyone, okay? By the way, just to say this, everyone is a one-issue voter. If you have somebody who's excellent in every area, but they're a Nazi, you don't vote for them, right? So everyone eventually is a one-issue voter on some issue. The question is, what is that issue to you? What is the most important issue that you will come down on on those things? And then lastly, what would it be with Kant with drinking, okay? What would Kant think about drinking? One, he's German, so he would drink all the time. But what would he think as as, uh, as far as that scenario? He would just say you'd have to make a universal rule he would say something probably like this if he were a christian he says he's a christian he's probably not but here's what he would say he'd probably make a universal rule everyone may drink assuming that they don't get drunk they're not underage and they're not causing someone else to stumble something like that but it would be a general rule that is binding on everyone that is binding on everyone now here's the problem with Kant's system how broadly do you state the categorical imperative how broadly do you state that Do I say something like, anyone named Zach who lives in Texas may steal? If I phrase it that way, then maybe I can do it, okay? Maybe just the Zachs will take over. It seems hard to figure out what rules should be universal in certain situations, okay? In certain situations, it's hard to figure out what rules should be universal. His categorical imperative sometimes seems to break down. Some rules can be universalized, but they're not moral. One should always put on their pant legs one leg at a time. That's a universal rule, a good practice. I don't know if you usually try to just jump into your pants like I do, but it's better to put on one leg at a time, okay? That's a universal rule, but it's not ethical. It seems like consequences should play some part in your ethics. Not the main part, like utilitarianism, but it seems like it should play some part. You wouldn't just say, yeah, I'm, gonna lie, I'm not going to lie, and I'm going to hand over these Jews to the Nazis or something like that, okay? And then lastly, what do you do when two moral rules seem to sometimes conflict? What do you do? You see, Kant's system can't answer some of these objections. Is Kant's, though, a Christian position in that it says rules are morally binding on all people regardless of consequences? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay? Now, I've created a little chart in your handout just to show you the differences of the main two systems. Most people are probably subjectivists in our culture. But uh, at least before our culture, when people were smarter, they were at least one of these two. They were typically either, uh, uh, they followed Kant or Mill, deontological ethics or utilitarianism. Here's the differences in the systems, okay? Are actions right or wrong in and of themselves? Kant would say yes. John Stuart Mill, one of the big proponents of utilitarianism, would say no. Are rules equally binding on everyone? Kant would say yes. Mill would say no. Should you do the right action regardless of the results? Kant would say yes. Mill would say no. Does motivation matter? Kant would say yes. Mill would say no. Only results matter. Only what produces more pleasure matters. Do people have value? Kant says yes. They have intrinsic value. Mill says no. Only instrumental value. They're only valuable in that you can use them to get pleasure or pain. Where do you look when making moral decisions? For Kant, it's the past or the present. And to Mill, it's the future. Meaning, if you were asking Kant, should we lie? He would think through the history of what people have thought about lying and he would say, would we want to make that a general rule today? No. If you ask Mill if you can lie, he would look to the future. He would say, well, if that lie produced more pleasure than pain, then yes, okay? So they're looking to different places to ground their ethics. Now, some other things to think about regarding ethics before we have, uh, before we have some uh, time for questions. Number one, I wrote utilitarianism is the devil. I sound like uh, Bobby Boucher's mom from The Waterboy. Utilitarianism is the devil. Stop thinking that way, it's unchristian, Okay? we do not do evil that good may result. We are not concerned with results. We are concerned with whether or not something is right or wrong in and of itself, okay? Again, God is not going to judge you for the results of something that happens if you're doing the right action that he's asked you to do. I've had someone say to me, Zach, let's say that there's a terrorist and they put a gun in your hand and they say, if you shoot this child, the terrorist will not kill these other 10. But if you don't, the terrorist will kill the other 10. What do you do? You don't shoot the child. And when those other 10 people get shot, that is not on your head. God is not gonna say on judgment day, you should have murdered the innocent child to protect those 10. Because I didn't kill those 10 by my decision, the terrorist did, okay? Number two, (laughs) correct people who use their personal experience to avoid truth. You will hear this a lot. You can't tell me this because you don't know what I've been through or you don't know what it's like or whatever. According to a biblical ethic, God's laws are binding upon all of us regardless of experience. Experience matters, it's important. It, uh, it makes following certain commands harder for some people than others. I totally get that. But it doesn't mean that we can throw God's laws out just because of uh, our experiences, okay? Correct people who try to get out of discussing truth because they don't like your tone or the way you did something. Again, that's a way to get out from under the uh, helpful rubric of Kant. And then lastly, these are just the big four theories. There are other ethical theories we don't have time to get into. Ethical egoism, where you only do what's best for yourself all the time, obviously not a Christian position, etc. I just wanted to give you a few. And the last thing I wanna say this, what is situational ethics, okay? Situational ethics. Christians can't just ask the question, how do I be loving to this person? First, we have to ask the question is, what does the Bible define as love for this person, okay? Situational ethics is not that certain situations change whether or not something's right or wrong. Everybody holds that, okay? If someone's a criminal, it's not murder if the state kills them. Whereas if you're just a criminal and you go and shoot somebody because of a drug deal, that's murder. That's not what situational ethics is. Situational ethics is within the same situation, the situation itself determines whether or not something's right or wrong, okay? So I'll give you an example. That might sound confusing. Let's say somebody comes up and they say, can I get divorced? My spouse physically cheated on me. Typically, we'd counsel them through. I'm not gonna tell you what we'd act. we counsel them, have them meet with our elders, do all of that. Let's just back up and just go into uh, just talking about ethics, though. Let's say someone comes up and they say, my spouse cheated on me, can I divorce them? The first thing we have to say is, okay, the Bible allows two grounds for divorce, physical adultery and physical abandonment. If they fit one of those criteria, they can get divorced biblically. Not that we'd recommend it, not that we'd counsel them that way, but they're not sinning if they do, okay? What situational ethics would do is it would take the exact same situation and it would apply the rule differently just depending on the couple. So let's say you have two couples that have been cheated on. The situational ethicist says, was your marriage really hard? Okay, well, then you can get divorced. Yours wasn't really hard? Okay, well, you can't. It starts misapplying the categories when it comes to that. So running out of time, Jeff, if you want to start coming up here, I'll give you what is the best Christian ethic, okay? What is the best Christian ethic? I think Christian ethics is a combination of three things. It is a combination of the Bible, first and foremost. That's how we know who God is and what he commands. It's a combination of Aristotle's virtue ethics in that we are to become righteous people. We are to walk out the justification we've already been given by faith alone. And it is a combination of Kant in that uh, God's commands are binding on everyone. So it's deontological in the sense that God's commands are binding on all people regardless of situation or the result it will entail. It's the Bible in the sense that it is commands given in the Bible that must be applied to everyone. The Bible provides the material content for a deontological system. And then it is virtue ethics in the sense that the more we practice virtue, the more we will naturally know what to do when a new situation arises. We are to become holy people overall. Okay? Woo! That was a lot of stuff. We talked about ethics and politics and a bunch of weird philosophers. Here's all I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. When you approach the Bible ethically... I want you to ask, what does God command? I want you to ask, is this binding on all people regardless of circumstances, regardless of results? Yes. And then I want you to practice those things and you will find yourself being holy the more you practice it. Your righteousness is already given to you by Christ, by faith alone, okay? What you're doing in your Christian life is you're learning to become what God's already declared you to be. If a beautiful woman walks by and you're tempted to look at her lustfully and you look away, it will be easier to look away the next time because you've practiced virtue. If when she walks by, you check her out, it will be easy to check her out the next time because you've practiced unrighteousness. You can practice obeying God's commands like you practice a sport, and you might not be very good at it at first, but the more you practice it, the better you become, okay? Not to earn God's favor, he already loves you, just based upon faith in Christ, but so that you might walk in more of that freedom. Jeffrey, come up here with your sweet texted questions. We're gonna try this out for the first time. Hopefully some people texted in, not just uh, GIFs and emojis and such. Okay. Jeffrey, what do we have first? Pick, pick the top three, and then we'll be out of time.
1: Here we go. Thank you, uh, Taylor. Yeah, so did Rahab and the Hebrew midwives sin when, uh, when they lied? How would you answer that?
0: Great question. So <clears throat> here's, here's what's coming up. There, there are two big instances that people will use when talking about ethics from the Old Testament. The first is Rahab, who's this lady who's a prostitute who hides spies— uh the israelite spies so they're not killed by the uh, the canaanites and she lies the other one is the hebrew midwives so pharaoh says kill all the young hebrew boys the hebrew midwives don't do that and uh and so uh, then pharaoh asks, why didn't you kill these kids and their answer is because hebrew women are better than egyptian women and they give birth much faster that's basically their answer have they sinned in that circumstance what i will give you is how each of these guys would answer that <laughs> here's the, view. okay, so, the question is not, did they do the right action? Notice, Rahab is commended for hiding spies. She's not commended for lying. The midwives are commended for not killing the babies. They're not commended for lying, okay? So, the question is not, did they make the right decision in protecting people? Yes, they did. The question is, did they still sin? Did they still lie? Did they commit the lesser sin of lying to prevent the bigger sin of handing these people over, Okay. I will give you a my view just because somebody's going to ask me about it. So here's what my view is. My view is that the command in the Bible about lying is about normal circumstances, okay? When a magician says that he's not holding a card behind his back, and he is, has he sinned? No, because a magic trick is not the context of real life. Okay? I think that there are certain contexts in the cases of war, in the cases of being an undercover police officer. When you do a pump fake in basketball, you've deceived that person. You said with your actions, I'm going to shoot, and they jump, and then you dribble around them, and you do your thing, right? And so... I don't think any of those are actually lying because I think the context there is different. I think when the Bible talks about lying, it's not talking about when you have Jews hiding in your basement that people are trying to holocaust. I think it's talking about normal life. So my view in those is, I'll give you one of two views. I don't think that either Rahab or the midwives have sinned. The other view, if you're Kant, is that yes, they did sin, but they still chose the better decision than that. They chose the greater good of protecting these people opposed to telling the truth and giving them up. Those are the two major Christian positions. No, they didn't sin at all because the situation is not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about not bearing false witness. Or they did sin in lying, but they did not sin in protecting these people. That's what's tough. There's not one issue going on here. There's two. You're commanded not to give over people to be holocausted. That's implied. It's not those language used. That's implied. And you're also commanded not to lie. You have to try to keep both of those commands. So, those are my thoughts.
1: That's good. I'm not going to give any of my thoughts. I have to Preach on uh, blessing those who persecute you, so let your inbox be filled up with ethical stuff. Uh, Romans 14 says that each person should be uh, fully convinced in his own mind. Does that support subjectivism in some instances?
0: Great question. You wanna start? you want to start with this one?
1: Uh, sure, sure. I'll do this one. It's not that that hard. Uh, So uh, I think in the context of Romans 14, what what it's talking about there is uh, in regards to holy days. Some perceive of this, and by the way, we'll be in Romans 14 in in a few weeks, so uh, whoever asked this question. Uh, I'm sure we'll walk through that, but uh, the context is some people are convinced that they should celebrate a Sabbath. Some people are convinced that they shouldn't celebrate a Sabbath. Some think that it should be on a Saturday. Some think that it should be on a Sunday or a Monday or whatever it might be. And uh, and Paul's conclusion is each person should be fully convinced in his own mind. What he's not saying there is that, uh, yes, it is true that you are still under the Old Testament uh, uh, Sabbath, and yes, it's true that you're not under, that would be contradictory. So that's not what he's saying. He says there is an objective truth, that object, ob, ob, objective truth is that you're no longer under the Sabbath, that uh, there is no day that is inherently more holy than another. Uh, but he also says there, there needs to be this room for your conscience. And, uh, and in the context, he's talking about weak versus strong. So we need to understand the context there is that he says there is a strong position. The strong position is that each, that there is no day that is more holy than another. But he also says you need to make room for the weak in faith who think, I have to do this. So, uh, so he's not saying there uh, what subjectivism would say, which is that there is no actual morally binding sort of objective truth. He says there is an objective truth, but he also wants to say in, in issues where uh, there is uh, moral neutrality, you're not sinning if you celebrate a day. You're not sinning if you don't celebrate a day. In that case, we need to be gracious to each other and, uh, and honor each other in that way. So, more yes, on that? So,
0: subjectivism is not, is one thing okay for somebody and not for somebody else, okay? Some people in here should not drink. You might have a, a tendency towards drunkenness. It might violate your conscience, so you should not do it. Other people in here can do it. Okay? That's not what subjectivism is. Subjectivism is saying that something is right or wrong based upon your conscience, not based upon the Bible. So what we would say is the Bible does not condemn drinking, and therefore it's up to the freedom of people to decide whether they do or they don't wanna do it. It doesn't mean you have to. The Bible gives you a menu. You don't have to order everything on the menu. Okay? Uh, subjectivism is it's not the Bible that determines what's right or wrong. It's my personal opinion. And for some subjectivists, it's that their personal opinion should be binding on everyone. So the question is not, should, is something okay for somebody that's not okay for somebody else? Yes, we all agree with that as Christians. The question with subjectivism is what makes something good or bad? For the subjectivist, it's just your opinion, and for the Christian, it is what's outlined in the Bible. So it's the grounding for these things, not uh, that thing in and of itself. So uh,
1: We've got a lot of questions that basically just asked, what would you do in each of these situations? So I'll just, whoever had those questions, invite Zach out to lunch, he'll buy, and uh He'll walk you through that. But last uh, last question, for the sake of time, can you give a kind of a clarification on as you walk through these? You said some of them were Christian positions, some of them weren't Christian positions. Uh, but even on the ones that were Christian positions, there are elements of them that you wouldn't disagree that you wouldn't agree with. And so uh, there was a question on uh, a clarification on what a Christian position means. How can virtue ethics be a Christian position if it doesn't have an objective standard for right and wrong? And on what basis does someone decide what is virtuous under uh, virtue ethics? That's a great question.
0: What I mean by saying one is or is not a Christian position is, are there major elements of this position that are consistent with what Christians have held traditionally and consistent with the Bible? Aristotle is not a Christian. He will not be in heaven. Kant, I don't think, is, is a Christian. He would say he's a Christian, but some of his views are uh, really not good when it comes to God. And so I don't think you will see him in heaven, okay? I know you won't see Mill there, uh, to, to throw that out there. So what I mean by that is this. I don't mean that they're Christian in the sense that they give you a full-blown view of what the Bible says. What I mean is that they're not incompatible with the Bible, okay? The Bible would encourage us in moderation for a lot of things. It would also encourage us to become virtuous people. That's what I mean by saying Aristotle's position is Christian, not that Aristotle's a Christian or he would have defined it that way. When Kant talks about rules are binding upon everybody regardless of consequences, that's a biblical idea and so I mean that's Christian. So my, my, what I mean by that is more, which of these positions uh, go against the Bible, and which of them go with the stream of the Bible? Virtue ethics and deontological ethics fall into certain streams with the Bible. Subjectivism and utilitarianism uh, directly contradict and go against the Bible. That's what I mean by that. That's a great, that's a great question, a good clarifier.
1: So. Uh, let's pray, and then, yeah, after, afterwards we'll stick around and, and we'll do that, just for the sake of time. Sure.
0: Almighty God, we thank you for this time together, and uh, I just pray that this uh, is somehow helpful to us later on. I I pray that if I've offended anybody, uh, that they would forgive me, knowing that I'm imperfect, that I'm still working through an ethical system. I pray for where we have failed. Everybody in here has failed to think of you rightly. Everyone in here has failed to obey your commands, uh, me especially. And so I thank you for the cross. I thank you for grace in Christ. I thank you that this is just a way where we try to honor you. It's not to earn salvation or because you're mad at us or any of those kind of things. And so I thank you for this time together. I pray that uh, this would spark dialogue, that this would uh, encourage people in their hearts. I pray that people would go to lunch and wrestle through these things. I pray that as issues come up on, uh, uh, in our culture that we would try to think through them Christianly, that we would try to lay aside our biases. We all have biases. We all have things that we don't see because of our background and experience, and we all have things we see clearer because of our background and experience. So would you help us in these things? We love you. In Christ's name, amen.